Please open your Bibles now to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We are on the second commandment this morning. And if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus 20, starting in verse 4. This is God's word. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just the opportunity to be together and hear from you. We have gathered this morning to hear from you and worship you. And I pray for this particular Sunday morning that you would touch the hearts of your people and And Lord, even those who may be here who have not bent the knee to Christ, Lord, would you touch their hearts. Uh, Teach us what it means to have no other idols. Uh, Teach us what it means to worship uh, you alone. Teach us what it means that you are a jealous God. Uh, Teach us, Lord, about your holiness and the seriousness of this command. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Years ago, there was a famous uh, debate between Frederick Copleston and uh, Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell was a famous British atheist, and uh, Copleston was arguing for the Christian worldview. And the story's told at one point in the debate, Copleston said, Mr. Russell, you believe in good and bad, don't you? And Russell said, yes, I do. And Copleston said, well, how do you differentiate between good and bad? And Russell said, the same way I differentiate between yellow and blue. And Copleston said, well, Mr. Russell, you differentiate between yellow and blue by seeing. How do you differentiate between good and bad? And Russell said, on the basis of feeling, what else? The appropriate logical kill would have been Mr. Russell, in some cultures they love their neighbors and in other cultures they eat them, both on the basis of feeling. Do you have any preference? And the story was told, when you say there's an evil, aren't you admitting there's a good? When you accept the existence of God, you accept a moral law on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. But when you admit to a moral law, you must posit a moral law giver. If there's no moral law giver, there's no moral law. If there's no moral law, there's no good. If there's no good, then there's no evil. But there is evil in the world, isn't there? Last week I had four introductory thoughts on the law I wanted to whet your appetite with, and I want to add another one this morning. The law speaks to the existence of God. God and his law are deeply connected. The first commandment declares the existence of God. In fact, in in Jewish tradition, the first commandment was actually uh, the statement, the declaration, I am the Lord your God. 
That was the first commandment. Then after that definitive declaration came the rest of the laws. With the lawgiver comes the law. If there's no moral law, there's no good. If there's no good, then there's no evil. It's actually a great argument for the existence of God, but that's for another day. My point is that the first and second commandments are inextricably linked. Verses 4 through 6, what we call the second commandment, is really similar to the first commandment. No other gods leads to no idolatry. One author put it this way. If the first commandment is against worshiping the wrong God, the second commandment is against worshiping God in the wrong way. No other gods leads to no idolatry. So let's look at the explanation of this second commandment starting in verse 4. And I'll tell you something. Personally, this has been one of the most interesting, fascinating studies I can think of for the last number of years at least. I am fascinated by the second commandment. And I feel like I've only dipped a thimble into the ocean on, on the study of this. But let's attempt to understand the explanation of this commandment. You shall make for yourself, a, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. The second commandment has to do with making idols that represent God. Uh, making things that look like God. The King James called this graven images. Uh, generally what would happen, at least in paganism, is that the worshiper thought the God was, was present in the idol. The gods possessed, as it were, uh, the piece of wood or stone. And the word here used describes something carved or shaped are formed. It's actually the same word used of the etching of the Ten Commandments, the, the tablets. The words make and carve covered really a comprehensive prohibition on all forms of idolatry. But the transition between worshiping your God and then worshiping the idol was a fairly effortless transition. It doesn't take long to go from point A to point B, in other words. What's interesting to me and noteworthy is that if you worshipped an idol made of clay or wood or stone, you're basically using creation to ignore the creator. Think about it. This is true in all kinds of idolatry, all forms of idolatry. You're using his creation to suppress him. Idolatry is a confusion between the creation and the creator, and that confusion is a gigantic no-no. The heaven above, look at this in your Bibles, the earth beneath, the water under the earth are all examples of creation. Idolatry confuses creation and creator. You might say it leverages creation, even good things like sex and money and pleasure, and puts them in the place of God. To reduce God to our affections of God or something in our own making is wrong. To imagine him to be different than he is, to prefer him to be different than he is, to concoct a version of God than what is actually revealed and, and real is majorly wrong. That's an attempt to edit God. That's an attempt to make him more manageable, more palatable. 
And usually, maybe always, it's to make God in our image, after our likeness, our preferences, who, who really agrees with our notions, our ideas. We've essentially become judge over God. We've fashioned an idol. Steve Ashford makes a great case for the second commandment. He said, imagine if a woman's husband found out that his wife routinely told her friends, I like to see my husband as a six-foot-two Antonio Banderas who lifts weights, whose perfect idea of a date night is perusing the aisles of TJ Maxx, who drinks frou-frou smoothies made out of strawberry, who delights in talking about fashion trends and home furnishing ideas. If she kept saying that, her real husband, five foot six Frank, who likes to work on his truck, who wears Wranglers, whose idea of the perfect date is to shoot deer together, who drinks his coffee black, might get a little upset at being misrepresented so badly. He would have the right to ask her why she has to reimagine him in order to love him. That's how idolatry works. We essentially remake God, reimagine him in order to love him, and that's wrong. That's very wrong. We could look at so many examples, and honestly, these could all be their, their own individual sermons, but let's look at just a few examples of Old Testament, of idolatry in the Old Testament, and then a couple in the New Testament. Classic example is the golden calf. We'll look at this in in weeks or months to come, in Exodus 32. Uh, But you know the story. Moses takes too long on the mountain. Aaron proclaims to the people that the golden calf was actually the one that led them out of Egypt. I think, and I could be wrong here, but the Israelites weren't actually worshiping Baal. They were trying to worship Yahweh, but they were doing it in their own way. In the wrong way. They might have been trying to say something akin to, you know, God is precious. Precious like gold. God is a provider. He's provided for us. It's like a cow. The people tried to worship Yahweh, but they reimagined him. They remade him according to their own ideas. And that never works. You always end up with something lesser. Another example of the second commandment is King Jehu. Jehu was a king of Israel. Elijah anointed him. He was great. He went uh, postal on Ahab and Jezebel. He, he cleans house. He, he, you know, she was the most blasphemous woman in the whole Bible. Later on, he kills the priests of Baal. He does a lot of correct, appropriate, right things. But before he dies, it says this about him. Thus, Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. What a great statement. Hip, hip, hooray. He wiped out the false teachers from Israel. Nice work, Jehu. But then the verse goes on and says this. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. You could say he obeyed the first commandment, but not the second The golden calves were used to worship Yahweh. 
Let's look at idolatry in the New Testament. One of the classic examples is in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul. Uh, It says this, Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. He confronts them, these learned people in the Areopagus, with the first and second commandments, actually, mostly the second. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Paul says, essentially, I'll tell you who he is. He made the world and everything in it. He made the heavens and the earth. He doesn't live in temples made by man. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Actually, he's the one who gives life and breath and everything. Then Paul says, and it's an example of the second commandment, he says, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Do you see it? An image formed by the art and imagination of man. Right? This is, I mean, this is language of the second commandment. And then he goes on to say he commands all people everywhere to repent. He tells them that God cannot be worshipped via idols. And it wasn't so much that they were worshiping the wrong God, they were also worshiping in the wrong way. You cannot contain this God with an image of an idol. I think one of the best examples or most informative is in Romans 1. You can turn there real quick if you you want. Romans chapter 1 verse 21, Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, verse 23 of Romans 1, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God, follow me, follow him, for images, icons, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. There again. Note the range of creation. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up to the, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because, why? They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. In my mind, that is the definition of idolatry. You're worshipping the creation Rather than the creator. That's idolatry. They exchanged God for images. They exchanged God for images resembling mortal man, for images of birds and animals and creeping things. In short, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's idolatry. One last word on idolatry. Stuart Douglas, in his. Uh, New American Commentary series in Exodus has a great summary on idolatry. I've summarized a few of his bullet points. I want to give him credit. He listed more, but I want to highlight seven features of idols in the Bible. Just real briefly, idols were selfish. If you have needs, you turn to your idol. You need crops? Feed your idol and your idol will bless your crops. Idols were easy, not a lot of commands. They don't demand a lot. Not a lot of repentance required. Not a lot of life change expected. 
Just feed them and keep them happy. Pretty easy. They were convenient. 1 Kings 14, 23 says, The high places, the sacred stones, the Asherah poles, were on every high hill and under every spreading tree. They were everywhere, like convenience stores on every block. Idolatry was available under every shaded tree, as opposed to the temple, which was super expensive and time-consuming and inconvenient. Idols were normal. It was mainstream. Everyone did it. What's what the powerful and influential people did, quoting Douglas, if an Israelite asked a Canaanite neighbor, how do you farm around here? The Canaanite neighbor probably would start his explanation with a description of how to make proper offerings to Baal and Asherah in advance of preparing the fields and planting or other farm duties in order to ensure the fertility of the farm. Number five, idols were pleasing to the senses. Idols weren't ugly. They were pieces of art, pieces of design, visually stimulating. There was industries of this, idol making. Idols, number six, were indulgent. Israelites could eat meat whenever they chose, but pagans only, usually at least, ate meat after they sacrificed to an idol. It was a double blessing. Do a good deed and feed your idol and also feed yourself in the process. Heavy drinking and and getting wasted were normal parts of idol worship. In fact, it was virtuous. It was a sign of generosity to your God. Eat as much, drink as much, your God gets more, everyone's happy. And last, idols were erotic. Sexual immorality and idolatry went hand in hand. Temple prostitution was a problem all throughout the Old Testament. How convenient to make your sexual appetites an act of worship and devotion. Look at verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, the verb bow down occurs 170 times in the Old Testament. It means to lay on your stomach, prostrate, usually in the presence of a superior or in, the, in front of an angel or a god. It was out of reverence and respect. The Israelites bowed down to the image of the golden calf, for instance, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego said they would not bow down to the image of Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 5 goes on, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now today we, we use jealousy almost synonymously with envy, but this is not envy. This is like a husband who's passionate about his wife. This is an exclusive passion, a correct passion, a holy passion, a proper passion. God forbids idolatry because of his jealousy. He's zealous with love. The fact that God is jealous is a a wonderfully intense truth. He is passionate about his people. He is unwilling to let you poison yourself with lies. He's unwilling to see you implode with the lust of idols. He forbids it. He's jealous, and he will punish it. This is a good thing. Verse 5, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, what does this mean? Uh, This is an easily misunderstood verse, just for context. Uh, Listen to what Deuteronomy 24 says. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. 
So I don't think God is saying that he, he punished innocent people up to the third and fourth generations because their great-great-grandpa was an idol worshiper or an atheist. The punishment is punishment for children who grow up following their parents' footsteps and don't worship God. Generational sins are hard to overcome is another way to say it. In the words of Hank Williams Jr., there can be a bad family tradition. So the warning is if your parents did not worship the living God, change course. For the sake of your children and your children's children, worship God. Orient your life around Yahweh. Align your affections with the Lord. Make Him first and highest and most important. Make Him first in your heart. Make Him preeminent. Because there are generational blessings that come from obeying God. Look at verse 6. It's showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Notice the disparity between the punishment and the blessing. God punishes sin for three or four generations, but notice how wide his grace is for those who love him and keep his commands. Now, the steadfast love is a, an important word you are probably familiar with, hesed. This person who obeys the second commandment has hesed from God, this covenant loving kindness and faithfulness from the Lord. It's the Psalm 1 person. That person is blessed. His children are blessed. His children's children are blessed. He's like a a tree planted by streams of water. Blessed person. This brings up an important point. There are long-lasting effects to your life. There are long-lasting effects to idolatry. Your life will have an impact on your great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren. It's interesting that God holds families responsible. When the head of a family sinned against God, his whole family was judged. All 70 of Ahab's sons were killed for their father's idolatry. They joined in on it. Now, maybe you're single. Maybe you don't have children. Maybe you do. It's the same question, though. What is your legacy? How will you be remembered? How will your obituary read? Don Carson wrote a book on his father, a biography of his father entitled Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. In the final pages of the book, Don says this about his father who was a pastor all his life. He pastored small, struggling churches in Canada of about 40 to 50 people. When he died, there were no crowds outside the hospital. No editorial comments in the papers, no announcement on television, no mention in Parliament. No attention paid by the nation. In his hospital room, there was, only, there was no one by his bedside. There was only the quiet hiss of oxygen, vainly venting because he had stopped breathing and would never need it again. But on the other side, all the trumpets sounded. Dad won entrance to the only throne room that matters, not because he was a good man or a great man. He was, after all, a most ordinary pastor. <clears throat> But because he was a forgiven man, and he heard the voice of him whom he longed to hear saying, Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. You know, it's okay to be obscure. All of us are. But what's your legacy? 
Do you realize that generations will be affected by your obedience or disobedience to the second commandment? Parents and grandparents, it's almost frightening. It's almost scary to think about how much influence you have for good and for bad. And if you're listening to this and maybe you feel a little guilty, guess what? It's not too late. It's not too late to rally your family around you and say, I haven't always put God first. I've sometimes prioritized other idols and worshipped other gods, but no longer. Thou and thou only first in my heart. Let's consider some of the reasons for this second commandment. We've mentioned some, but let's consider some of these reasons. I think the, the question of why the second commandment is harder than what is the second commandment. Based on what we have here in verses 4 through 6, I've got a few thoughts. First of all, here's one reason. There's this emphasis of hearing over seeing. In the beginning, God spoke. Not in the beginning, God made a movie. The fact that he reveals truth by speaking is profoundly significant. Faith comes by hearing, not by seeing. He reveals in sound, not sight. God emphasizes, the Lord emphasizes hearing over seeing. Icons became popular because people like movies more than books. They'd rather watch The Chosen than read their Bibles, and God knew that. And the fact that God revealed himself through words and not an image tells us something about the way he wants to be worshipped. It's through listening, not looking. The human tendency would be, to be for worship to be shaped by images instead of words. Neil Postman, who wrote the book Amusing Ourselves to Death, said this, and I don't, I don't, even, I don't know that he's a Christian. He said, The God of the Jews was to exist in the Word through the Word, an unprecedented conception requiring the highest order of abstract thinking. Iconography thus became blasphemy so that a new kind of God could enter a culture. People like ourselves who are in the process of converting their culture from word-centered to image-centered might profit by reflecting on this mosaic injunction. He's right. This is a profoundly significant truth. Now, that being said, the second commandment is an anti-art The tabernacle had art, palm trees and angels, skilled craftsmen and artisans were were endowed with the Holy Spirit. They were gifts from God. Israel had art. This wasn't a command to outlaw anything aesthetic or artistic. God is pro-beauty, obviously. The prohibition is to use art as a means of worship, to use creation as a means of worship, or to infuse created things with a kind of spiritual magic. Because God knows we have a tremendous tendency to end up worshiping the creature more than the creator. So that's one of the reasons for the second commandment, to emphasize words over sights. We are to be word-centered, word-informed, word-taught, word-obeying people. Faith comes by hearing. Yahweh is a speaking God. They are listening to him as they're receiving these commandments, not seeing him. The second thing, the jealousy of God. Our passage lists one of the main reasons to not practice idolatry. God is exclusive. He's jealous in a good sense. And one of the reasons for the second commandment is that Yahweh doesn't share. 
He will not share his people with other gods or with other lovers, as they're called. And for our protection, he commands us to not bow down to the twisted and destructive road of idolatry. To not go down that road. Third reason is the long-lasting effects of idolatry. We don't need to go over this again, but idolatry, I think, unlike other sins, will have long-lasting effects. Great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren will be shaped by the obedience or disobedience to this particular command. Number four, to separate Israel from the nations. The nations see their gods, but Yahweh is invisible. You can only hear from him. The nations fashion their gods and carve their gods. You can't make anything resembling Yahweh. The nation's gods are convenient and user-friendly. Not Yahweh. The nation's idols encourage sexual freedom. Yahweh commands sexual purity and chastity and faithfulness to one spouse. We could go on and on, but this exclusive call to have no other idols would have naturally separated Israel from the other nations. Yahweh is not like the other gods. He's categorically different And this commandment, I think, will serve to uh, promote a proper separation from the nations. And number five, last one I'll mention for reasons, the unrestricted nature of God. An idol could never, ever reflect the God whose name is I am what I am. You can't make an idol that corresponds to the unrestricted nature of God. You can't do it. Anything you try to make will be offensive. And demeaning. You can't draw, draw, paint, or carve the attributes of God. His nature restricts the idols that try to capture his essence. All right, so we've looked at the explanation of the second commandment. We've looked at some of the reasons. Let's look at the application of this second commandment. And I've got five categories for us. First of all, idolatry and the exaltation of the visual. Uh, A question comes up, and and I'll confess, I don't know that I have the answer to these questions, but what about movies about Jesus, or drawings of Jesus in a children's Bible, or nativity sets, or flannel graphs, or mental images about Jesus? I mean, if I tell you, don't think about a pink elephant, Uh, and certainly all of us have driven down the road and seen images of Jesus, but before you laugh, these are actually good questions. Uh, Tim Challies, who we had here a number of years ago uh, for a conference, made a great observation about the second commandment, and I I think about it, I think it's worth retelling. He says, when I read the Lord of the Rings, or when I read the Lord of the Rings today, I picture Frodo as Elijah Woods, Gandalf as Ian McKellen, Aragon as Viggo Mortensen, and so on. My reading of the book has been changed by my viewing of the movie. I see the characters from the film when I read the characters in the book. In many cases, I don't want to because the characters in the film don't do justice to the characters as Tolkien wrote them. In many cases, they are deliberately different from page to film since they needed to be adapted to make an exciting movie. And this is just what I want to prevent when I read the Bible. I don't want to see Jim Caviezel when I ponder the cross. 
I don't want to see Octavia Spencer, George Burns, or Morgan Freeman when I ponder the Father. Before we see visual representations of God, even God the Son, we need to be sure we understand the power of images. God told the Israelites not to make visual representations of him because images lie. An image of God will communicate some things that are true, but many things that are false. It will misrepresent God in far more substantial ways. Yet as people look at, to that image, they will come to think of God as being like it. Their view of God will be altered, lowered accordingly. Now here's some application. First of all, my own opinion is that this is an area in the realm of Christian freedom. Some of this is gray. Some people will have freedom to watch Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, and some won't. So I want to be careful for all of us not to condemn one another in some of these areas. There are more obvious forms of idolatry than nativity scenes. But here's a principle, if I can add it. We are to give priority to the word, shape our minds and the minds of our kids with words and stories more than movies and TV shows about Jesus. In a visual age, this is a commandment to be countercultural in our priority of the word. <clears throat> Icons and pictures and movies will naturally take precedence. Consider the wisdom of the prohibition of the second commandment. There's wisdom here for us to apply. To say it positively, obeying the second commandment would make listening to the word and reading the word a priority. All right, second thing, idolatry and the exaltation of creation. I think this is one of the best illustrations of the second commandment, Romans chapter 1. The elevation of creation over creator, that idolatry ends in chaos. But it can happen with any aspect of creation. Paul says in Philippians 3, uh, their God is their stomach. Food, art, design, technology, all these things, relationships, people, creation, right? All these things can be what... what John Calvin said, our, our heart is a perpetual factory of idols. We can just pump out idols on about anything. And here's a great way to identify an idol. You might say, well, this doesn't apply. I don't have a little stone carving that I worship in my house that I put on my mantle. Here's a great way to identify an idol. What keeps you up at night? What do you daydream about? Where are your affections? Idolatry is adoring and prioritizing the creation more than the creator. It's a misbalance. Uh, idolatry and bad theology, here's another application. Bad theology is eternally destructive. And oftentimes it sounds like this. Well, the way I kind of prefer to think about God is like this. Fill in the blank. Or my God would never say that. Or my God accepts that. He's cool with that. He's okay with that. I like to see God as, and so on. But brothers and sisters, his name is I am who I am. His name is not I am who you want me to be. 
We come to God on his terms, not the other way around. The other way around is idolatry. But today it's the other way around. This might be the most prevalent issue of all the Ten Commandments today. People today hate the Second Commandment. In fact, again, it might be the most popular commandment to break. I'll do things my way. I reject the word. I reject this notion that I have to do what God says. My God is a God of love and tolerance, not wrath and judgment. I'll fashion my God to be cool and hip and tolerant and trendy and not holy. That's idolatry. And idolatry is wrong thoughts about God. Feminist theology. LGBTQ plus theology. Cross-less theology. Social justice minus the cross theology. Antinomian, no repentance, no obedience theology. It's not just false teaching, it's idolatry. Do you see that? Idolatry and sexual sin, we'll save this for later on the Ten Commandments, but there's a clear and direct connection between sexual immorality and idolatry. Cult prostitution was packaged as an act of devotion. Idolatry and greed. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. Money isn't bad. We know this. Money isn't wrong. Money is good. But money as a God will destroy you. Money is a cruel master. And there's no question that one of the biggest hindrances to serving the Lord in our context in America is worshiping the God of money. Affluence can become an idol. The Bible, again, never rebukes the rich for being rich, but we need to guard against the temptations of money. And can I just say, all of us in here are rich. The New Testament associates idolatry with greed Idolatry and greed connected. Colossians 3, Ephesians 5. You end up trusting it. You end up loving it. You end up serving it like it's a God. The second commandment says don't do that. Don't do that. Idolatry and pleasure. Pleasure is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But pleasure in the place of God is idolatry. If video games and Netflix trump the word of God and prayer, you might have identified a competing idol. There is another threat to serving Christ. It's the idol of me, me, myself, and I. We can serve and trust and love ourselves more than God. Greek mythology tells a story of a handsome young man named Narcissus. A beautiful nip named Echo fell in love with him, but his good looks drew enough admirers, so he sent her away into the woods. Later, Narcissus tried to find her, but he refused her invitation to come where she was and left the forest. All alone in the woods, Echo prayed, May he who loves no one love himself. Meanwhile, Narcissus had gone to find water and was kneeling over a lake and staring into the water. He saw his reflection and realized how beautiful he was. And he, in essence, fell in love with himself. 
Echo's prayer had hit its target, but Narcissus also became aware of how much pain his beauty had caused his female suitors. He dove into the lake and took his own life. The ultimate act of narcissism. That's what a preoccupation with self does. And we have a a surge today, a rise today of worshiping ourselves. It's the age, it's the air we breathe today. The only deliverance from the stranglehold of that idol is to transfer your allegiance to the Lord, serve Him. I'll mention one last thing. In fact, you can turn there, 1 Corinthians 10. I was thinking about this. This, again, could be its own little message. But idolatry in the Lord's Supper, we're about to take the Lord's Supper. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're welcome to partake of his table. But in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, and this is our theme this morning for the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 says, Therefore, my beloved... Flee from idolatry. Verse 16, the cup of of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. There are demons behind the idols. I don't want you to be participants with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. He's saying you can't have one foot in the church with the Lord's people and be participating with Christ and then Monday through Thursday go to these pagan temples where they're worshiping idols which are nothing but behind the idols are demons. There's a transaction that's going on with those idols You cannot do both of those things. Verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Maybe that's a reference to the second commandment. One of the things Paul's saying here is that the table of the Lord is exclusive. It requires devotion. And if you're worshiping other gods, you're participating with demons. You're practicing idolatry. Don't provoke the Lord. Repent. Serve Christ alone and take the bread and the cup and worship him alone. Be devoted to him alone. I'll close our time, our message in in prayer here, but one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord and they will worship the correct image of God. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of God. What's the solution to our idolatry? If you're, if you're wondering, boy, I've, my conscience is pricked. I feel a little bit of what you're saying, and I can identify some things that keep me up at night and some things I've given myself to. I know it's wrong. What do I do? 
I can't think of a better solution to idolatry than what Joshua says at the end of his life when he's speaking to Israel. Joshua 24, 14, go back and look at it, but he says this. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. What about you? Are you willing to serve the Lord? Are you willing to put him first? Are you willing to forsake these other idols, these other gods? Are you willing to provoke the Lord to jealousy? This is a call for us to repent. As the law exposes us, let's run to the Lord and find grace and forgiveness and mercy in Christ. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the law, which is incredible in its ability to wound us and expose us and reveal us. And yet we know it's a gift. This wounding is a gift. It's a blessing to be told the truth. And Lord, we even appreciate how you are a jealous God and you're unwilling to let us go off and do our own thing and go our own way. You are an exclusively jealous God. I pray that our hearts, by your grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, would be tuned to sing your praise, to serve you and you alone. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.